Last week on Easter, we posed a central question kind of in the midst of, of the, uh, the whole morning. And that was, why didn't Jesus' closest friends and followers recognize him as risen on Easter Sunday and the days shortly following? Why didn't they recognize him? Why didn't they recognize the risen Lord? And some of you had came up to me afterwards and said that you'd never seen or heard a message like that on Easter. And that always makes me very happy. You know, it's like if we can tweak something, if we can show you something in a different way and you've never seen it before, that's perfect. That's beautiful. But this is an ongoing theme for us. This is an ongoing theme about the way that we go about choosing the focus for some of these high holy days. And the usual focus is that it's focused on, of course, the, the miracle of the resurrection, you know, the, the triumph of Jesus over death and all that that means theologically. For us, though, to focus not so much on, obviously, if there was no resurrection, there would be no reaction to the resurrection. So it's not that we're negating that in any way, but it's taking a look at what were the followers doing, feeling? What were their attitudes? Why couldn't they see him at first? See, to me, that's the fascinating question because it also then points to us. What is it about us that keeps us from seeing the risen Lord in every moment and in everything that we do? If we're going to understand the Bible, if we're really going to understand the intent and what was put into the Bible, there's a shift that we have to make. And this difference in focus is geared at that shift. We can take the Bible literally. We can take it at its surface meaning, which is typically what conservative Christians do. Or we can look at it spiritually, which means we have to do a deeper reading. We have to kind of get underneath. And if Jesus' appearance is all about the miracle and all about the, the actual storyline versus our expectations of what his teaching mean what he said he was going to do and how that was going to be fulfilled or manifested in our lives, in their lives, then we're going to miss so much of what was put into our scripture, what was written in. If we only take the Bible at its literal face value, right, then it's only going to be relevant historically. It's only going to make sense in a certain place in a certain time. And it's not necessarily going to relate to us. But if we take it spiritually, then it's absolutely relevant now. It absolutely teaches us ways to be able to live and to choose and to move into the same place that Jesus was trying to get his first followers to follow him into. The spiritual interpretation is going to challenge our accepted beliefs, our long-time beliefs, beliefs that limit our ability to end the freedom to see truth as truth is, to be able to look for the living among the living and not among the dead, as that passage that we looked at last week is actually teaching. If we start to look at Scripture spiritually, it's going to start to change the stance that we take on Scripture on faith, and on our spirituality. And it's going to move us from a passive observer of history, a story that's at length from us, a story that that doesn't necessarily touch us, or just an obeyer, 
someone who just obeys rules, obeys laws, in order to be inside the box that we believe that Scripture is outlining for us, changes from that to an active partner with God's love and God's will. And what does that mean to be an active partner with God's love and God's will? I remember I said that we need to partner with God and someone said, took great offense and said, that's presuming that you, how can you partner with... Well, you know what? God invites us into that. God has already made his choice. God has chosen for us. God has chosen to be in relationship with us. But all God's choosing isn't going to change anything in our lives until we choose him back. We have to choose him back. He gave us the ability to make a free choice because without a free choice, there is no love as we understand love. But we have to choose him back. And that is done in all of these moments of our lives. This way of Jesus is the way of choosing God back. The way of accepting his free gift of love and belonging and community and oneness and unity that he's already given us since the very beginning. So instead of passively looking at a story, and even though obedience may not sound passive, but if it doesn't change us from the inside out and only from the outside in, if we only conform and we never transform, then obedience is passive too. Because transformation is absolutely active. Transformation takes everything that we have and changes it in some way. It takes effort. It takes full engagement. It takes full extension into. It's not passive. It's not just connecting dots and following rules and regulations. There's something more deep that Jesus is trying to get us into. So I guess the question you could ask as I'm talking to you about this and talking to you about looking at Scripture this way, talking about how we handled the scriptural passages dealing with Easter last week, is it true, quote-unquote? Did I get it right, quote-unquote? Is this what scripture really means? Is this the proper focus that we should have? This is what we're always asking, especially as modern Westerners. Is it accurate? Did we get it right? My, uh, our 12-year-old son, has just discovered Star Wars. <laughs> you know, I remember when it came out in 1977. There's another blast from the past, Steve. 1977, I was in school in Chicago at the time, and I remember standing in, you know, line was going around the block several times, standing in line in the cold, waiting to get in to see this movie. And here's my son just discovering it now 40 years later, exactly 40 years later, as a matter of fact. You know. But anyway, he's all into Star Wars, and uh, Marion bought him the complete set, all six, you know, four, five, and six, and then one, two, and three, so he's got this whole set, and so he wanted to sit down and watch you know, the, the first one, which is really the fourth one, and uh, we sat down and watched it. Yeah, it's confusing, isn't it? But uh, we're sitting watching this thing, and of course it's bringing back you know, all these memories, because I hadn't watched this thing in probably a decade or more, and uh, it, was, it was quite fun. And we got to that, that scene where Obi-Wan Kenobi is fighting Darth Vader, and you know, they're doing the, the lightsaber thing and going back and forth, and Obi-Wan says, you can't win. If you strike me down, I will become more powerful than you can ever imagine. And at the end of that fight, of course, as soon as he sees that his friends are safe, 
he just closes his eyes and sacrifices himself as Darth swings. And I never really understood that back in 1977. What the heck was going on there? You know, I didn't, the, the, the line just kind of went around and through me. And then, of course, I was missing having Obi-Wan there and he should have been there. And why did he sacrifice himself and all those kind of questions? But now, looking at it again through different eyes, I realize, well, Obi-Wan was a type of Christ. He was a Christ figure. He was doing what Jesus did. These are why these archetypes run so deeply through all the stories that we tell ourselves and have told ourselves since we've been drawing on cave walls. What did Obi-Wan mean? If you strike me down, I will become more powerful than you can ever imagine. Well, as long as he was alive, as long as he was in his body, he was localized. He was wherever his body was, one place and one time. And as powerful as he might have been, that's the extent of his influence. But as soon as he was struck down and allowed to move into the force, he was everywhere, all the time, every when. That's why he could be in the cockpit with Luke. Use the force, Luke. Use the force. You know, and every time Luke needed him, he was there in his, in his mind's eye, guiding him in ways that Luke had to be silent enough and give himself over enough to be able to comprehend. And then he had to actually choose to risk following the voice that was telling him how to connect. Now, did I get that right? I don't know. (laughs) You'll have to ask George Lucas to find out what the heck he meant when he wrote that line. But it fits fits the text, you know? It fits the storyline. It fits the context. And it teaches us something. It corroborates and 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 it just fills in these themes that we have heard all our lives. And so I don't know if I got it right, but it's a valid interpretation. I can do that, and I can lay it over on top of whatever George Lucas meant or whatever you all got out of it. It's not that there is one way of looking at that. There might be several. And if it's valid and it brings me closer in tune with my God and this way of Jesus, then it has value, even if it's not exactly what the author intended. So, How can we fairly approach Scripture? Can we do to Scripture what I'm saying that I'm doing? Well, what I can tell you is is that the ancient Jews, the rabbis, did exactly this. They were much more liberal with their interpretation of Scripture than we are, certainly. And they had a a way of of approaching Scripture. They had a formula, and it was called pardes. pardes. And if you look at your... um, your bulletins. I put a little bit down there because it's. I think it'll be easier if you can look at something while I'm trying to describe. And we're not going to take a lot of time with this, but I just wanted you to get a feel for the way that these ancient Jews, these Jewish teachers, these rabbis, approached the interpretation of Scripture, how they were going to use their holy book in order to be able to teach the people and lead them where they needed to go. And this idea of part is they were in love with acronyms. Well, since their language is only written in, in consonants, no vowels, it was really easy to do this. So the P, R, D, S, or in their alphabet, Pe, Resh, Dalit, and Shamech is, is an acronym there. And then you just fill in the vowels. But also, Pardes in, in Hebrew means an orchard or a garden. It can mean a park. It's used in various ways. And it could also euphemistically or figuratively be used for paradise, the paradise that Jesus talks about. 
And so they saw themselves as moving into paradise through the scripture, through this means of interpreting scripture. And it occurred on four levels. The P or the Pe stood for Peshat. And as you see there, this is the surface or the straight meaning, the direct literal meaning of a text. Okay? So whatever it says at the surface, that is the Peshat. And so that's the first level. Interestingly enough, this is about as far as many Christian interpreters go. They want to just take the literal meaning and they don't want to deviate from the literal meaning because as soon as you deviate from it, as soon as you say there may be some other way of interpreting this literal meaning, then the whole integrity of the scripture falls because if it isn't tightly interlocked and completely accurate, infallible, inspired, then the whole thing is called into question. And yet this was just the first layer of four deep layers of meaning that the rabbis enjoyed. The next one, the resh or the r, remes, is the hint. It's the deeper allegorical or hidden symbolic meaning suggested by the text. So the text to them would suggest certain things and they would have to go into it deeper, see what the implication was, see what the hint was, but then pull out this deep symbolic meaning. The Dalit, the D, Drash, or Midrash, literally means to inquire or seek or search, but it was a metaphorical meaning, comparing and expanding the text to similar circumstances in everyday life here, taking the truths of the ancients and then bringing it into the present, taking those two circumstances and bringing them together, right? Filling in gaps in the text. You know, the text is so spartan. It's so spare. There are so few details now, almost any passage you read, don't you have just a hundred questions? You know, King killed Abel. Why did he do that? It doesn't tell us, but I want to know. You know, if this is a good novel or fiction novel, they'd give me all the backstory and they give me all this stuff. I want to know this stuff. Where is this stuff? Well, the ancient Jews wanted to know the same thing about their texts. The Midrash was their way to search out, to inquire, to ask the questions about what was missing, to fill in the gaps, right? And then to answer the deeper questions suggested by the text, something that goes underneath the simple or the straight meaning. And most importantly, to make that text relevant for them today, not to leave it in the past, not to leave it at arm's length, not to leave it as something that happened somewhere to someone else, but something that is happening to us right now. And finally, the Samech, the, the Sod is a secret or the mystery. Now we're getting really out into left field. This is the esoteric or mystical meaning through inspiration or revelation. This is where we get into Bible codes where they would take the letters randomly and find other messages within and there were all sorts of very esoteric, you know, very mystical ways of looking at the scripture. So you can kind of see from the simple to the allegorical to the metaphorical to the mystical. There were all these layers and ways that the ancient Jews would look at their, at their text. And all of this was allowed. All of this was fair game. All of this was considered good interpretation. You try to do that today in Christian circles and, you know, they're going to, someone's going to say, get a rope. You know, you can't do that. There's obvious overlap between some of these, especially between the Ramesh and the Midrash. Right? What I wanted to do this morning was just focus on the Midrash for just a second. 
because as the Midrash seeks to fill in those gaps and answer those deeper questions, make things relevant for today. If you think about it, most pastors are really doing this, aren't they? Think of all the messages and sermons you've heard. Don't pastors read a text and then maybe tell a story from their own life, their own experience, or what is happening today to connect the two, to make it make more sense to you? You know, it's kind of like it as is as if this was going on. And they do that. And they go back and they fill in the gaps historically, linguistically. They may not go certainly as far as the ancient Jews did, you know, really pulling out motivations and backstory, you know, out of, out of their, I suppose it could be like thin air to us, but out of their revelation, out of their educated guesses. But we do that. We do do that. And if we didn't do that, it really would be a pretty dry study without trying to fill in those gaps, answer the questions that are being asked, and then apply it to what's going on right now. And so to try to answer why Jesus' first followers didn't recognize him when they saw him on Sunday morning, that's a midrash. That's what we're doing. The questions that are not provided for, the answers that are not provided for us in the text, we're going to fill those in. We're going to look at that. And what are we going to do? do? How are we going to do that? Well, we're going to look at our own lives. We're going to see how it is that we miss the obvious, how we miss the hour of our visitation, how we miss truth where it is, looking for it where we expect it to be. And then we can recognize that same human frailty and trait in these people that are being depicted in Scripture. That's all midrash. That's what we're doing. That's what I have been doing here for so long. Is it allowable? Is it permissible? Well, you know what? If it was for those who actually wrote our scripture, that's good enough for me. Now, it's controversial, and it may not be good enough for you, but I'm just going to lay it out here. This is what we're doing when we approach scripture in this other way. When we get beneath the literal meaning, the simple, direct meaning, we have to use these kinds of tools in order to fill in the gaps, in order to connect it to us. The ancient Jews understood this. This is how they wrote their sacred scripture. This is how they read and interpreted it. And this is what we're doing here too. Because when we do that, it changes things. The questions that I want answered out of a passage of scripture are spiritual maybe even psychological in a way, because I want to know what makes me tick. I want to know how I am supposed to react and act and the attitudes that I'm supposed to have that will make me more and more like Jesus, like Christ. And I can't do that unless I dig in and arrive at a midrash that brings me to a spiritual understanding. But of course, we're going to use the historical, we're going to use the literal, we're going to use the linguistic in order to take the educated guess to get there. Based on the big themes, the big truths that scripture is giving us throughout the entirety of it, to fill in those gaps, answer these spiritual questions that are implied and hinted in the text. So this is what we've been doing through Lent, through Holy Week. Some of you may or may have gotten the devotionals that were sent out every day of Holy Week and and may have actually read them. And each one of those was a midrash on whatever scriptures were in the liturgy for that day traditionally in the church 
filling in those gaps again, asking the deeper questions, moving from the literal and the historical to the spiritual, from the passive to the external view of text, back to the active, the engaged, the internal way of living life and making the text a living and active agent in our lives as well. Going back to your bulletins, I wanted to quickly go through so we can see how this works and see what Holy Week has been showing us. This Midrash, Midrash for Holy Week. Palm Sunday, the, the Peshat, the, the literal or the passive or the external way of reading the text. Jesus is entering the city on Palm Sunday as king, as Messiah. And all the people are begging Jesus, save us, save us, Hoshiana, Anayave, save us, O Lord. And they're looking for an external king, a Messiah, to come in and fix their problems, to kick out the Romans, to make things right, to take us to the next level. This is what they're asking for, but they're asking for Jesus as an outside agent to do that for them. But we took that and turned it around, and we looked at it from an active and an internal point of view to try to learn to see past our own fears, our own desires, our own needs, projected onto Jesus as Savior and realize that when we can see truth where truth really is, something changes in us that allows us to work through the circumstances that we find ourselves in, the circumstances that we so desperately want to change. The people couldn't do that that day. And in five days, they were saying, crucify him. And Jesus wept over the city, saying, he didn't see the hour of your visitation. What are we doing to see the hour of our visitation every single moment? Are we living our lives in such a way that our eyes are being opened, that we can accept Jesus as Jesus is, our Father as our Father is, or walk right past, looking for whatever it is that we expect to find? It takes it out of an external area and brings it back to us. What are we doing? What are we going to do? Moving to Fig Monday. The surface meaning, Jesus curses the fig tree and cleanses the temple. You know? What's the message that we mostly get from that? Well, you need to be right with God or else. You know, he's going to come and cleanse your temple. He's going to come and curse your tree if you aren't doing what you're supposed to be doing. So there's the surface meaning. But let's take that and realize that those two things put together the tree that would look like it could give fruit and didn't, the temple that looked like it was a place of, of worship and community and connection with an unseen God was nothing but a den of thieves on the inside. Jesus is asking us to begin to discern between that which can give us life, that which can move us forward to kingdom, and that which is barren, that which is dead. It's not so much he's cursing the fig tree, he's exposing the fig tree for what it is. He's exposing the temple system for what it is. Can we discern between the two or are we going to run after the forms, the ritual, the belief systems that we've always known, that have always promised life, but are not changing anything in our lives? And will we have the courage to overturn our own internal tables? Will we have the courage to challenge our own belief systems that are no longer bringing us life, but are limiting our ability to see what is true. Takes it from passive and external, brings it inside. We need to engage. Holy Tuesday, 
The ten bridesmaids, remember? Five wise, five foolish. The five foolish don't have oil for their lamps. And of course, because they have to go buy oil, they're late, the doors are shut, and they're locked outside, and there's weeping and wailing and gnashing of teeth. And what's the message there? Yeah, you've got to be ready, you know, or you're going to miss heaven for all eternity. That's the message that I typically got from that story, that passage. But if we take that and turn it around, again, in the context of the wedding feast, the, the two-year period where the bride is waiting for her bridegroom to come back and, and scoop her up and take her back to his father's house, learning to live in a balanced state, an aware state, where we're balancing between the day-to-day activities of this life, completely immersed, fully aware completely connected in relationship and at the same time looking forward to the radical change that is coming at any moment. A moment when we don't know when it's coming. This radical change, this new life that happened on Easter morning. What is it that is going to change radically and when is it going to change? We don't know. We haven't got a clue. But it's there. It's like an unwrapped Christmas present under the tree waiting for us to open at some point or to get permission to open from mom and dad. But to balance that with this right here and now, to live in that sacred tension is really what kingdom is all about. We talk about kingdom being the quality of life right here and right now, and it is. But it's married to the expectation, the hope, the excitement, the promise of radical change at some point, isn't it? has to be. And so again, taking that and turning it around. Spy Wednesday. This is a story of Judas. He's conspiring with the Sanhedrin to betray Jesus and getting his 30 pieces of silver. And then it's a story juxtaposed with Mary, who comes in with a jar of really expensive perfume and breaks the jar open over Jesus' feet and washes his feet, anoints them, and dries it with her hair. And Judas is incensed and saying, this is a great waste. We could have taken all this money and given it to the poor. And so you have the juxtaposition of Judas and Mary. And of course, what we've focused on in that literal meaning is the greed of Judas, the betrayal of Judas, sin and punishment. But if you look a little deeper, what you find is Judas looking at Jesus from an institutional point of view. It appears, and this is the Midrash, it appears that Judas never got past Jesus as Messiah, as Mashiach, as this national figure who is going to be able to lead and galvanize the nation in rebellion against Rome, throw out the Romans, reestablish a sovereign nation, and also elevate him to the position he wanted to be in that new kingdom. What was Judas really doing? Why would he betray Jesus if he was a true believer, if he was a zealot, if he believed that Jesus was this Mashiach? Maybe he was trying to light the fuse. Maybe he was trying to to push Jesus into the position of having to accept the political mantle as it was thrust upon him. We don't know. But contrast that with Mary. Mary just saw Jesus as beloved, personal master and friend. That's what he was. Can we make that shift? From dealing with our God through the institutional, through the church, through the macro, and bring him home into our hearts so that we can just kneel at his feet and pour everything of value out before him 
That's what Spy Wednesday is really about. Taking Jesus into our hearts, seeing him that intimately, and not just through the lens of our belief system. And then Monday, Thursday, Jesus washing the feet at the Last Supper, giving the new commandment, love each other as I have loved you. And the message to us is that we need to be in some kind of humble service. You know, it's another rule. It's something that we have to obey. We need to be like Jesus. But there, I think, if we look deeper, Peter is the instructor for us. Peter's refusal to have Jesus wash his feet because it was an outrage to have his master in that position. It was abomination to have him strip down, kneel at his feet to wash them. Never. I'm not going to let you do this. You're my master. But to learn to accept that our God is a humble God. Our God is an unassuming God. Our God lives to serve. Our God does wash our feet, cares for us in that way. To get through all of the outrage, to get through all of the grinding gears, to get through all of the cultural training, the imagery of God up on this throne way up high, and to bring him into perspective as Jesus is showing us, this is who my Father is. This is who I am to you. Can we really do that? Because if we can't, how in the world do we match our will to God's will? How does his will get done in our lives if we are constantly fighting who he really is? If we keep him on the top of the pyramid, isn't that what's really going to be mirrored in our lives, in our attitudes, in the way we do business? But when we see him existing to serve, that's who he is. That is his divine will, his pleasure, his purpose, his desire to serve us, his creation. Everything changes. And Jesus told Peter, if you don't let me do this, if you don't see what it is that I'm showing you, you can have no part in me. <laughs> well, then wash my head, my hair, and everything else too, Peter says, because that's Peter. You know? Did he get it at that moment? I don't know. But at least Peter, impetuous Peter, is willing to throw in and go for it. Can we at least do that, even if we don't really get it? Just throw in and go for it? And then we move to Good Friday. Good Friday, the crucifixion, of course, the perfect sacrifice of Jesus that opens the way back to the Father is the way that we've always looked at that passage, that section of Scripture. But what happens if we take a look at it in another way and we look at the cross as the ultimate freedom? James' Law of Liberty the ultimate freedom to lay down everything it means to be human, everything it means to be us. Jesus laying down everything it meant to be him for another, for the friend. No greater love is there than someone lay down their life for their friend. What happens when we take a look at it that way? The first thing we have to realize is the cross isn't where Jesus started to lay down his life for his friends. It's where he stopped the process in physical form. 
It was the ultimate culmination. He was doing that his entire ministry. His entire ministry, he was pouring out everything. He was withholding nothing. He never stopped giving everything that he was and everything that he had at any moment, in any situation, in any connection, whether he knew the person or whether the person was from a different tribe or not even from the house of Israel. It didn't matter. He poured everything out until ultimately he poured out his last drop on the cross, showing us unequivocally who this Father is. I and the Father are one. He keeps saying over and over again, I do nothing on my own initiative, only what the Father does through me. And he's pouring everything out constantly, withholding nothing, forgiving people who hadn't earned it yet, healing people who never said thank you, who never even asked necessarily for healing, pouring out constantly. This is who my Father is, is what Jesus is trying to tell us, trying to get us to understand. How was he able to do this? How was he able to love like his Father? That passage of him in the wilderness, painfully learning how to lay down everything that it meant to be human, all of his ego self, all of his human compulsions and drives, to empty himself completely, so that he could fill himself with Father and emerge from that desert saying, I and the Father are one, to continue the process of pouring everything out that the Father has now poured through him to his friends. What happens when we look at the cross like that? How does that change the message to us to become completely free of everything that we hold on to and cling to in order to be able to pour everything out to whoever is near. This is what Jesus is talking about. This is another layer, not an either or, a both and, that brings it home, brings it over to us, gives us something that we can act on and partner with. Holy Saturday. Very simple. It's just Jesus in the tomb, right? He's in the tomb. There's nothing to do. The church doesn't do anything. They close down, basically. Cover the cross in purple. You know, there's no mass. There's, if it's you're in a liturgical church or a Catholic church, there's no service. It's just a time of quiet and meditation. And the focus was always, yeah, but what's going to happen on Sunday? <laughs> That's where the focus lies. But what about if we take a look at what is really happening on Holy Saturday? What happens when we really take the time to sit with our grief, to sit with the pain of mourning and let it seep into us, to steep in it, to not wish it away, to not push it down, but actually let it become a part of us. Let us become a part of it. Jesus said, blessed are those who mourn for a reason. There's something in the mourning. There's something in the sitting with that kind of grief. It changes us. takes us a place that we may have never gone before. It's interesting. I was just talking to Tina this week and we were talking about this very subject. And the subject of the Jewish way of mourning came up. They call it sitting Shiva. Shiva just means seven in Hebrew. The traditional Jewish mourning period for your primary family members, you know, parents, children, siblings, spouse, would be to sit for seven days, to have a seven-day mourning period. 
And then beyond that, you would say Kaddish, you would say the prayer of mourning for your parents for 11 months, for your children or other family members for three months. And then you would say an annual Kaddish at the anniversary of the person's death. This is the, the, the layers of mourning. But this idea of sitting Shiva, I wanted to read a little bit so you can understand the importance of Holy Saturday. What is it trying to get across to us? In Judaism, the first period of structured mourning is Shiva. The word Shiva means seven, refers to the seven-day mourning period for the immediate family of the deceased. The purpose of sitting Shiva, the Shiva tradition or sitting Shiva is to create an environment of comfort and community for mourners. It helps guide friends and family members through the loss of a loved one. Throughout the week-long Shiva period, mourners come together in one family's home to offer their condolences and support. Specific observances may vary depending on the Jewish community and its belief, but sitting Shiva, mourners do not work during the Shiva period. This is a week. And for the most part, stay at home. During the Shiva period, mourners also do not participate in parties or concert or shows or movies or similar events that are celebratory in nature. Mourners are to focus on their loss in order to be able to gradually heal. And by leaving the Shiva house, mourners are surrounded by distractions and more likely to lose focus. Contrast that just for a second with the way we often handle mourning and loss in the Christian tradition, especially these days, where our memorial services are often referred to as graduation ceremonies. Have you ever heard that one before? Graduation, you know, you're graduating to a better life. This, this life really didn't matter as much as it's the next one that you get to graduate to. Or we call them the celebrations of life. And they're, they're joyous and, 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 and open and, and lively and, and, uh, and fun even, in a way. It's not that there's anything wrong with that. But if we sometimes take it to the extent that Christians are made to feel guilty if they're feeling the pain of loss, if they're depressed, if they're not able to break through their grief. You know, I've actually heard people say, hey, you know, this is supposed to be a celebration because now they've graduated. I've heard that kind of pressure being put on someone who's mourning. To be able to let someone just be in their grief, to sit there, not in an unhealthy way that lasts forever. Psychologists say it's usually about a year, a full year, before someone can move through all the stages of grief. But think about what we do culturally. Think about how we are so uncomfortable, unwilling to simply be and feel deeply the pain that will take us through the stages of grief, take us through to the other side, to take us to the comfort that Jesus promises those who mourn. Mourners may also be sitting on low stools or boxes in their homes during Shiva as a means of expressing grief. Furthermore, this practice symbolizes the humility and pain of the mourner being brought low by the passing of a loved one. If you go to a Shiva house, you may also see that mirrors are covered. Although there are many explanations for this practice, the most widely accepted is that a mourner should not be concerned with his or her personal appearance at this time. In addition, while in mourning, some people will not wear makeup, men won't shave or wear new clothes, and some will not wear shoes for the same reason. You might find that a tall candle is burning, and traditionally in the Shiva house it would burn for seven days as a sign of the memorial. A mourner will usually be wearing a torn black ribbon on his or her clothing. This practice, known as Korea, 
symbolizes the tear in the mourner's heart for his or her loss. In traditional communities, a person's actual clothing may be torn near the heart. This ritual calls for the mourner to wear a torn garment during the Shiva while on Shabbat, high holy days, and festivals. No public signs of mourning are worn. Someone just asked me as they were watching a a movie on the Passion Week when Jesus' mock trial is being held, you know, early Friday morning. And at one point, Caiaphas, the high priest, he says, ah, blasphemy, and he rips open the tunic of his vestments. Remember seeing that? That is Korea. That is the ritual tearing of the garments that was meant to denote, and it was always done right over the chest, to denote the tearing of the heart, the broken heart. It was a sign of mourning, it was a sign of pain, it was a sign of loss, a sign of grief. And so Jews to this day wore this torn ribbon or actually have a garment that is torn. Here's another little midrash you can have for free. Right at the crucifixion, when Jesus dies, what does the scripture tell us happened? That the veil, the curtain of the Holy of Holies that separated the court from the Holy of Holies was torn into from top to bottom. Now you've got to understand, this curtain was probably... 60 feet high and some estimates four inches thick. This was not any little veil. This was a huge thick curtain. For it to be torn like that was monumental. Now the way that Christianity has looked at it, it was symbolic of now the way being opened by Jesus' perfect sacrifice on the cross, having been closed before between man and God, was now opened that the people could actually access God. Beautiful. But it's also Korea, isn't it? It is Father God rending his garments from top to bottom because of what he has given us. See, that brings me in immediate contact with my God, rending his garments as someone who is sitting Shiva for the loss of their loved one. In the Jewish religion, there are certain prayers recited to honor the passing of loved ones, to celebrate their life, and to help with coping during the mourning process. Such prayers include the mourner's Kaddish and the prayer of mercy. And they would do this in a minyan. A minyan was a quorum of at least ten, which meant that you had to have people over or you had to leave your home and go where the people were. This brought you back into community. Do you see the wisdom behind this tradition, this structure, how it works, it helps you to sit, to feel the grief. Not to, not to make it a part of who you are, but to feel deeply everything as you go through it. And you're doing it with your friends. Your friends would come over and they would bring food. They would sit with you for at least 20 to 30 minutes, just sitting and maybe saying nothing, or maybe talking and having memories together, but they would just sit with you. I'm not trying to fix anything. There's nothing to fix. It's just a process that you're going through. It's another rite of passage. It's a hero's journey. And they would sit with you while you're going through it. And as you said the prayer every day, you did it with at least 10 people so that you're coming back into community. It's so important for us to see how this relates, how this can take that idea of Holy Saturday and turn it around for us. Maybe it seems morbid to you. Maybe it seems really overly negative to you, but we don't know how to grieve anymore in our culture. 
we push it down, we say that we're supposed to be okay, we pretend like we are, and the grief doesn't last a year, it can last decades, and we never really get healed, we never really get over it. This is the healing and the structure that brings us back into community, brings us back into life again. The Holy Saturday Midrash can teach us this. It can take us where we need to go to get more and more in tune with what Jesus is trying to show us. So that by the time that we get to Easter Sunday, instead of just focusing on the literal resurrection and and the miraculous nature of it, we can also look at ourselves and say, what is our reaction to something so outside of anything that we can possibly imagine, so outside of any human expectation? Can we see the miracle that is right in front of us right now? Can we go beyond our expectations to look for Jesus among the dead where we last left him? Or in our churches, or in our theology, or in our dogma, in our ritual, in our safe place, and move out into every moment and every corner of our lives and find him there? Because if we can't find him there, we won't find him anywhere. He is never among the dead the angels tell us. He's always among the living. Can we do that? Can we give ourselves permission, as our ancients did, to read deeper into the text? Can we do that? Can we say, yes, this is all right to do this? Can we find the meaning of Scripture among the living, among the living daily details of our lives, right here and now? and not just where we expected to find it in some historical text. This life, this living and active scripture, this father of ours who loves us as he does, is never going to just be among the dead of history. It's going to be right here, right now. Jesus is asking us to move from this passive view of scripture, from this externalized connection and stance with God to this active and engaged and internalized way of living life that makes it all alive, living. From the literal and the surface reading to a deeper reading that brings out the spiritual truths that we won't see at first glance. These truths can prepare us day by day for the radical change that resurrection has for us new life that will change everything in our lives, but only if our eyes are prepared to see this new life among the living, among every moment of our lives. It's going to feel scary. It's going to feel dangerous. But that's where we have to go. That's what Jesus is telling us over and over. Come on. Take the leap. Find my Father, the Father who loves us so much that he rends our garments when we don't come near. Let's pray. Father, it's overwhelming. When we see the evidence of the way and the degree to which you love us, It's just overwhelming. So hard to get a grasp of. Help us to take 
the smallest steps toward letting go of what we cling to, giving ourselves permission to go into what seemed like dangerous areas, to find the truth where it really is among the living and not just where we expect it to be in the graveyard. Thank you for everything. Thank you for Easter. Thank you for this next period leading to Pentecost that takes us to the next level of connection and partnership, understanding and power in your spirit. We love you and we can only do it because you loved us first. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's all stand.